Wow, episode 14. We're a little over halfway into the season. Everyone, please help me welcome Jane Peck to the show. Born in Singapore and now living in New York, Jane Peck's short fiction has been anthologized in the best American short stories. And her debut novel, The Verifiers, is forthcoming from Vintage Knopf in February 2022. She holds a BA from Yale University, a JD from New York University School of Law, and an MFA in fiction from Brooklyn College. This week, she'll be reading a section of her story, Portrait of Two Young Ladies in White and Green Robes, an Identified Artist, circa 16th Century. She will be accompanied by an original score from Daniel Frank Wisen. Hi, I'm Jane Peck, and you're listening to Storybound. This is a short story that was published in the literary magazine Conjunctions, and it will be coming out in Best American Short Stories 2021 later this year. Welcome to Storybound, presented by LitHub Radio and the Pod Agglomerate. I'm your host, Jude Brewer. In just a little bit, you will be transported all around the world, from San Francisco to Beijing, where our narrator is searching for a very special painting. Portrait of Two Young Ladies in White and Green Robes Unidentified Artist, Circa 16th Century Part 1 A few hours ago, your last descendant died. She held only a whisper of your essence, or as one would say in the scientifically rigorous present, only a minuscule percentage of her genetic material was derived from yours. But of them all, she was the one who reminded me most of you. She was a documentary filmmaker, the third generation of your descendants to be born and raised in America. Her work examined ways in which the technologies of her era shaped people's lives. In her 20s and 30s, she lived in China, where she made a series of films about the state's electronic surveillance system, the tools used by the government to monitor its population, the balance to be struck between security and personal freedom. Her documentaries were as fair as they could be, in my view, taking into account the inherent biases of her Western upbringing and education. The Chinese government, which after all this time remains deficient at accepting criticism, disagreed. After they revoked her visa, she returned to America and settled in San Francisco. You would have enjoyed San Francisco, I think. Its pastel hues and precipitous slopes, its anarchic spirit, the lapping glitter of water all around. I befriended her later in her life, when it became clear she would have no children. I presented myself as an admirer of her work 
and a student of Chinese history. Also, an immigrant from Hangzhou, where I knew her own family was originally from. We grew close. I made myself indispensable to her. At the end of her life, I was in the hospital room when the lines dragging up and down across the screen of the vital signs monitor subsided. Humans have developed the custom of measuring the distance a person stands from the border between the living and the dead. They watch every step their loved ones take toward that one-way crossing, count down every last breath. I suggested to your descendant once that the technologies highlighted in her films were really no different from what people living during the Ming Dynasty or any other historical period of China would have called magic. Then, they had been watched by ghosts and demons and deities, their sins recorded, their actions influenced. Now it was the turn of facial recognition software, online history tracking apps, predictive algorithms. She smiled and said that I was in the company of brilliant minds. A famous writer and futurist had proposed a similar idea many years ago. I did not tell her that I'd met this writer on a beach in Trincomalee, Sri Lanka, even more years ago, or that he and I had struck up a conversation while sipping lukewarm beers and waiting for the waves to settle. At one point, he was describing his vision of the future to me, space elevators and communication satellites and personal devices that contain near-infinite reserves of information. And I said all that sounded much the same as the way things had always been. Chang'e floating to the moon, texts charmed to display whatever knowledge the reader saw, an enduring invisible world overlaid upon the physical one. Magic, you mean? He said. That's one word for it, I said. Mostly we had talked about what we were both there for, which was to go diving. He asked why I had chosen this relatively obscure beach. I told him I had heard that the remnants of a medieval Hindu temple lay submerged in the vicinity. The work of Portuguese colonial forces, which, after looting the complex and killing its priests and pilgrims, had gone above and beyond to lever it over the cliffage into the bay. Later, when the sea had calmed, I swam between broken columns and poised bronze goddesses over inscriptions of faith splintered across the rocks. Now and then, I still search for such relics, even if I don't bother documenting them. Nostalgia, I suppose. In the green silence of the water, I could sense the shimmer of the eternal. I hoped that when the writer found these ruins, I might as well have drawn him a map with all the hints I provided. He would as well. The music you're hearing in this episode is from an original score written and performed by Daniel Frankweisen. And now for a quick commercial break. You are listening to Storybound with Jane Peck and Daniel Frankweisen. And now we return from our break.
Part 2 The night before your wedding, the last night I would have with you, I surrendered my pride on the altar of desperation and asked you why, in all 18 hells, you were doing this. I want to have a child, you said. Wait, I said. Seriously? Since when? Since Xiangyang, maybe. It's hard to tell these things. Back then, we did not think in terms of time. Our references were geography and action, places we had been, things we had done. In Xiangyang, we had talked the jilted, impoverished artist out of jumping into the Hanshui River and spun a pretext to give him a hundred tails of silver. We would ask him to paint our portrait. We wore our best dresses for it, you in white and I in green. We tinted our cheeks and lips, put pins in our hair. We never collected the painting from him. We prided ourselves on travelling light. And, anyway, we saw no use for it. A record of things that would never change. Xiangyang was several Ming emperors past, a hundred stops ago in our travels through China. We looked for enchanted artefacts, analysed and catalogued them, sought to understand the wondrous within the human realm. Until we stopped in at Westlake to follow up on rumours of a jade bracelet that could heal its wearer. A fake, it turned out. And you met the man you decided would do for a husband. I had never considered that we might not live like this always. For a moment I thought that I must not know you at all. You had been hoping it would pass, you said, like a thunderstorm or an inept dynasty. Also, children frighten me. They need so much and they are so easy to lose. I placed my palm on your stomach between the twin ridges of your hips. All right, I said, a child. I imagined your belly swelling the way those of human women did, the creature that would tear its way up, yours and not yours. You don't have to marry him for that. It wouldn't be fair to him or to the child. What about to me? This was why I hadn't wanted to ask. Unknown I would succumb to self-pity and that it would make no difference. You told me you had calculated the fate of the man who would be your husband based on the 10 stems and 12 branches of his birth. He had a delicate constitution. He would pass in 24 years before his 50th birthday. I did not say anything. You said, what is 24 years to you? I said, what will 24 years be to you? I wasn't thinking 24. I was thinking 50, 60, your skin drying to parchment, your hair thinning and graying, your frame stooping ever closer to the ground in which you would, if you did this, someday rot. You touched my face. I waited for you to ask if I would give up my own immortality if I was willing to step with you out of the wilderness of myth and into the terraced rice fields and tiled roofs of history. 
You don't have to stay, you said. I told some version of this story to a man I met in a tavern in rural Shantong. A spirit trading in her immortality to have a child with a human, asking her companion to wait 24 years until they could be together again. I was on my way north to Beijing to bring your son back home following his placement as top scholar in the imperial examination. The boy might have excelled at composing eloquent Confucian nonsense, but he would have been picked apart by bandits the moment his horse trotted beyond the city walls. This man was traveling south, returning to Suzhou after visiting a friend. The tavern was empty except for the two of us. We ended up drinking together, probably for much longer than we should have, talking over the noise of the torn paper windows flapping in the wind. When I was done, the man said, what happened when the 24 years were up? I laughed, nothing. Seen in a certain light, now I could appreciate the glinting mocking edges of our story. The wine probably helped. It felt potent and tasted foul. She died within two years. The birth was difficult for her, and she never recovered. Neither of us had thought to calculate your fate in addition to your husband's. After all, we had walked through fires and dived off waterfalls, dismembered demons, battered away the assorted Buddhist monks determined to save us by destroying us so we could reincarnate as lovely, pliant daughters and wives and mothers. What could possibly happen to you while ensconced in domesticity? Running a medicine shop with your constitutionally challenged husband? It turned out, you were fucking terrible at being a human. My fellow traveller poured me another cup of wine from the jar we were sharing and told me a story as well of a young man who had been in love with a prostitute but lacked the wealth to redeem her from the brothel. Instead, she was acquired by a textiles merchant and he took her away with him to another province. The young man expressed his sorrow through any number of histrionic poems. 24 years later, no longer young, he was visiting a friend in a town in that province and found out, by chance, that the no longer prostitute lived close by and also that the merchant had died and she was now a widow. 24 years, I said. Really? He smiled. Don't you think that's why we met today? What did... I almost said you, since it was obvious he was talking about himself. What did he do? Nothing. I said, he no longer loved her? He did, said the man. He chose his love over her. Nine days after your son and I arrived back in Chunxiang, your husband collapsed while in his shop. At the funeral, I heard your voice beneath the drone of the Taoist priest reciting his interminable scriptures, asking, what is 24 years to you? Quite a while later, I read a story about two snake spirits in human guise. The White Maiden and the Green Maiden, they were called. 
is part of a collection of folk tales by a late Ming writer and poet from Suzhou. In this story, the White Maiden lives in the depths of Westlake and attains immortality from ingesting some magical pills that a human boy accidentally swallowed and then vomited out again. The Green Maiden's equally mortal state is never explained. The boy grows up to become the White Maiden's husband, their early sharing of bodily fluids a portent of compatibility. A turtle spirit in the form of a Buddhist monk heads it out for the White Maiden. He was also in that lake and wanted those pills for himself. And he traps her in a pagoda. The Green Maiden, her faithful companion, hones her skills for 24 years and succeeds in breaking the White Maiden out of her prison. After which, the White Maiden returns to her husband and her son, their medicine shop, her bucolic life. Nothing further is said of the Green Maiden. The music you're hearing in this episode is an original score written and performed by Daniel Frankweisen. And now for our final break. You are listening to Storybound with Jane Peck and Daniel Frankweisen. And now we return for our final chapter. Part 3 At some point between your death and your husband's, I returned to Xiangyang to look for our artist. Age had petrified him. I barely recognized him beneath its encrustation. When he saw me, he told me I bore a remarkable resemblance to someone he had met long ago. I painted their portrait, he said, that girl and her sister. I imagined how you would have smirked at that, the notion of us as sisters. And for an instant, it was like I was standing at the bottom of a very deep well, its lid skewed to expose a hallucinatory glimmer of sky. That's so funny, I said, because that's why I'm here. I explained that I worked for an art collector who had heard of the painting and was interested in acquiring it. You're 60 years too late, he said. I gave it away. Couldn't stand to look at it. I said, as calmly as I could. Why? I couldn't get it right. His arthritic hands curled open and then closed again. There was something about the two of them. The way they were. I couldn't get that into the portrait. He stopped painting altogether shortly afterward. I'm so sorry, I said. He shook his head. He told me his friend, the same one he had given the painting to, got him a position at a trading house, and within 10 years he had made enough money for 10 lifetimes. Best decision I ever made, he said, after not drowning myself over a whore. It took me almost 300 years to find that damn painting. 
From Xiangyang, I followed the mercantile route that the cotton trader who had taken the painting would have, floating south and east on overladen barges down the Hanshui. By the time I located a branch of the man's family, he had been dead for decades. His possessions scattered across his three concubines and 14 children. Meanwhile, your son sold the medicine shop, returned to Beijing, rose to become a senior official in the Ministry of Justice, and, in what he must have thought of as a personal political coup, but with less than ideal timing, married your granddaughter into Ming nobility right before the Jurchen stampeded into the capital. I was in Changsha, checking on a lead from an art dealer, and I had to hustle to Beijing to extract her and her newborn from that shit show. I left her husband behind, which was better for all concerned. I parked them in Hangzhou, the last place we had lived before I lost you. And there your family remained until the final act of the Qing dynasty, a modest clan of tea growers on the slopes surrounding Westlake, safely hidden in the undergrowth of history. My search led me, eventually, to Guangzhou, the port city on the Pearl River where the Qing had consolidated all maritime trade. There I learned of an English missionary who fancied himself a guardian of Chinese culture, and how he had convinced the painting's erstwhile owner, a recent convert to Christianity, to give it to him for safekeeping. In our great capital of London, he said, we have a special building that stores treasures from all over the world to make sure they won't be lost or ruined or stolen. He had fled for England on the last clipper ship out of Guangzhou before the British Navy began bombing the city during the Second Opium War. And that's where our portrait is. Room 33 of the British Museum in the company of a red lacquer box depicting a spring landscape and a commendable forgery of a Tsingdezen porcelain vase. The placard beneath the painting highlights the delicacy of its brushstrokes and the insights it provides into female friendship during the Ming era. Our artist was too harsh on himself. He might not have understood us, but he did manage to set down what he saw. You were smiling at me. It was something I said, I don't remember what. I used to think that as long as I could make you smile, the world would be a fine place. The colors of our dresses glow against the dun background and behind us the clouds swirl like at any moment they could lift us away. There's something I must confess. When I finally saw the painting, I might have sort of, cried. I never had, previously. They brought you away in the bridal sedan, and again in the coffin, and both times I watched you become the centerpiece of their human rituals, composed and costumed, almost unrecognizable to me. So then, 300 years later, to be undone by patterns of ink on silk, Swatches of white and green paint. A memory of an unmemorable day. It was quite alarming, actually. 
Thankfully, the man standing a few feet away from me in the gallery said, no doubt after observing me sniffle for far too long, you seem like you could use a drink. He could have suggested a dagger through my eye and I would have taken it. Do you know a place? I said. He looked startled, which might have been for any number of reasons. My forwardness, my speaking English, I had picked it up from the sailors on the long voyage over, or the accent with which I was doing it, which must have made me sound as if I had grown up scuffling for survival on the docks of London. Then he laughed and offered me both his arm and his handkerchief. The establishment where he took me was gold-trimmed and gaudy, with mirrored walls and fat-winged babies painted across the ceiling. He salvaged my opinion of him by ordering me an enchanting drink. It was a translucent green, as if lit by a hidden flame, and when I sipped it, I could taste anise and fennel. After the first glass, he told me, I would see things as I wished they were. After the second glass, as they were not. And, finally, as they truly were. As we drank, he asked me what I had seen, looking at that painting. Beauty, I said, and how it passed. Young people are supposed to defer such dour thoughts to the old, he said. Oh, I said, I just look young for my age. The ephemerality of beauty is indeed a tragedy, he said, but surely not in art. The painting will preserve those women's beauty forever. While they grew old and died, I said. That's even worse. It should have been the other way around. He and I were both well past our third glasses by then. So I told him the story of the hermit on Taishu Mountain who would remain alive for as long as his portrait was intact. The version I told was the one you and I had followed from village to village throughout Henan province, seeking to determine its authenticity. A scholar official, fallen out of favour with the first Ming court, who begged his portrait to assume the burden of ageing for him so he could serve as a historian of the dynasty from its founding to its fall. Fascinating, said my drinking companion. The Ming dynasty ended in, what was it, the 17th century? What happened to him then? I don't know, I said. The story doesn't get that far. Thank you to Jane Peck for reading. Jane has a novel coming out this February, and you can pre-order it now. Introducing a sharp-witted heroine for the 21st century, a new amateur sleuth exploring the landscape, both physical and virtual, of New York in a debut novel about love, technology, and murder. You can pre-order that. It's called The Verifiers by Jane Peck. Thanks to Tucker Dalton and Kathleen Conte at CDM Studios in New York, and thank you to Epidemic Sound. Our production coordinator is Jordan Aaron, our mixing engineer is Tim Carplus. Editing, sound design, scoring, arranging, and hosting are done by me, Jude Brewer. Our executive producers are myself, Jeff Umbro of the Podglomerate, and Justin Alvarez of Lit Hub. You should find us on Instagram or on Twitter at StoryBoundPod. Or 
You can write to me directly on Twitter at Jude Brewery. We love hearing from you. New episodes are released every Tuesday. All right, we'll see you then. Jane Peck short fiction Jane Peck short fiction Jane Peck short fiction Jane Peck short fiction Wow Wow